1: You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the architect John Pacow, who, along with his partner Patricia, founded Pacow Architects in 1978. Based in Vancouver, the practice has become celebrated for its regionally-influenced work, and built projects across Canada, from the Seabird Island School in British Columbia to Montreal's Grand Bibliotheque. If their early work was guided by forces of climate, topography, and local culture, their current projects are defined as much by an interest in inherent material properties and their potential to generate new forms. I met John in early January at his office in Vancouver, where we talked about, among other things, his attraction to architects whose work differs from his own and his and Patricia's curiosity and openness to new approaches to design. We also talked about Pacquiao Architects' identity as a Canadian practice and how they negotiate both indigenous and colonial histories in the making of their work. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. So Happy New Year. Same to you. <laughs> before we started recording, you were saying in the past you kind of
2: resented breaks in a way? I yeah, think? exactly. Because it was in downtime that I, I was frustrated by the sort of lack of infrastructure because the way I work now, it's changed over the decades. It used to be when we were drawing, and this practice has been around for quite a while, we, long before there were computers. And um, when there was drawing, uh, I was directly connected with the sort of the the work product of the office by making drawings. Mm -hmm. But I haven't continued to develop my drawing skills in digital form. And so now I'm removed from the actual uh, document that we produce, Uh, and so I'm dependent upon Uh, 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 sort of an infrastructure to do my work. Mm. Uh, And even now that we use the computer to deal with geometry, uh just uh, drafting on your uh on your board is is uh incapable of of dealing with some of the geometric uh, configurations that we're now working with uh-huh. and so again i am dependent upon infrastructure uh, and so if the infrastructure shuts down uh i i can think about stuff but i can't do much stuff and i don't get the kind of feedback that i need uh so uh the world has changed because of my failure, I guess, to become, to stay sort of up to date with uh, with documentation technology. Mm-hmm. It's
1: an interesting conundrum mm-hmm. where through time the architect gains experience and knowledge and expertise but at the same time um, the modes of production outpace.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: And And so what you're describing is a kind of obstacle almost.
2: It is an obstacle but it's also um, I think a very positive thing because it forces you to take a step back in a sense to focus on the big picture and not allow yourself to sort of get, or you, it's not that you you're not, can't allow yourself, you simply are incapable of uh, focusing on uh, the minutiae because they're out of your grasp and so this has forced me to make space for others, mm. for one thing, mm. so the office is larger than it was because we have, this, because I need this infrastructure to do uh, what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's given others an opportunity to, to enter into the discussion and the development of projects in a positive way. Uh, so it's been, I think, a very good thing. It's expanded our, our reach and capacity it's increased the brain power that uh, the office uh, has available. Uh, and uh, it's bringing in subsequent generations in a way that um, is very important because uh, <laughs> there's an inverse relationship to technology and age. And so uh, sometime in some of the things we do, uh, the, the most junior people, junior in quotation marks, Uh, of the office are essential because of the digital skills that they have uh, that the more senior people in quotation marks don't have. Uh, And so there is a real interesting flip in terms of uh, where the skills lie and which skills lie where and how uh, the layers of experience within the office interact. Uh, It's uh, it's, very dynamic and there is a Essential uh, place f- for everybody as opposed to in the old days where it used to be where the junior people were more simply instrumental uh, in, in exercising the uh, uh, instructions of the more senior people.
1: It seems like this office has really embraced that transition into digital practice um, and This was a kind of hinge that I wanted to touch on. I thought it would come across, or I thought it would emerge later in the conversation, but we're here now, so we might as well well, talk about it. Yeah, well, we
2: certainly have. I mean, I still draw, and Pat and I both uh, have drafting boards, and we uh, we draw. And uh, uh, we uh, tend to use drawing in two ways. One, to facilitate our thinking at the outset of a project, to sort of begin to understand what the project is and what the potential is. Uh, And then subsequently to uh, uh, elaborate uh, where speech is inadequate. So sketching, uh, to facilitate a discussion with others who are actually developing digital uh, documents. Uh, we still use physical models, um, especially in certain aspects of our work, which is actually one to one scale uh, manipulation of materials, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which is part of a research initiative which we have within the office, which is developed in a variety of ways, including furniture now, mm-hmm. uh, which is again done physically mm-hmm. rather than uh, through uh, digital media. Um, but uh we still draw we still model physically we but we have embraced all of the powerful things that digital technology can do mm. as an expansion of our tools
1: i want to try now and kind of chart a trajectory backwards okay we're going to start i think we're going to dwell a little more in this question of digital practice mm. but what it calls to mind for me is this desire that i think a lot of contemporary architects and designers have now to embrace inherent material properties. Yes. Um, But in order to do that, there is this um, digital kind of intermediary, Mm -hmm. uh, especially at larger scales, to achieve a kind of uh, representation of the inherent physical properties of a material. Mm -hmm. And so when I said obstacle earlier, that's kind of what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. So I just want to kind of plant that seed for a second. But then in addition to that, I think hopefully we'll kind of meander our way back to broader questions of potential uh, and this term that you've used in the past, found potential. Okay. So I think we'll start with the found potential of matter All right. and then work our way back to the found potential of site, climate, cultural context.
2: Okay. All right. Well, it's it, talking about matter. Um, and the potential of matter as distinct from those other uh, areas of of, uh, relevance to projects. Um, We began doing a series of research projects, beginning with a a very sort of um, successful project uh, which was called the Skating Shelters in Winnipeg, which was made out of uh, thin sheets of plywood. Actually, a special kind of plywood, but that's a, another story. But uh, that came about as an initiative uh, on Patricia's part. Uh, she was, um, m- at that time, more frustrated than I was at the uh, issue with the issue of materiality in our work, uh, and she uh, spoke to the need to uh, address materials as a potential, as opposed to the conventional architectural method, which uses materials uh, with in a different way, where you design something and then you, I guess you think about sort of the technologies that are most appropriate for that particular project, and you fill that in and then, but the, everything takes on the configuration that's determined mm-hmm. Prior to the initiation of an, of an interest in materials, and she wanted to, uh, to reverse that, mm-hmm. and so that the the skating shelter project was the beginning of that, and we uh, then did a series of projects at that scale. I just wanna, I'm just curious. I want to jump in and ask, yeah. what kind of instigated
1: that desire to reverse this process? at beginning. Not with form, but with material. Yeah,
2: that's a question that she'd probably be better answering (laughs) than than I would, but I will speculate um, that uh, she was um, more sensitive, perhaps, than I was to the pitfall of architectural projects to um, have um, a, a generic character as a function of the use of materials in a generic way. And she, I think she was more sensitive to that than I was uh, and uh, pointed that out. And, uh, but once she'd done that, I was, I was on the case and certainly joined her in that, in that interest. Uh, and so we did begin a series of these things, <coughs> of studies of, of really the direct manipulation of materials. What also uh, informed um, this initiative was a frustration on my part. I was teaching at Yale University uh, about 10 years ago and I taught a number of terms there. And so I was dealing with students who were very bright, who were very technologically uh, uh, skillful. Uh, And I was witnessing uh, other studios in the school which focused on digital technology in itself as opposed to uh, architecture or materials. And uh, I sat in on some of the re- project reviews and I was constantly frustrated because when you would ask, What is it made of? What is your project made of? How do you construct it? Uh, th- the answer was typically, uh, I don't know. Uh, we don't know what these things, these forms are. We don't know how they would be made. They're digital forms which somebody else will figure out how to make and I thought wow that's really interesting that's uh, a that's uh, again it's a part of the problem of architecture moving too far away from making uh, and the loss of control which you inevitably get uh, because of that and the loss of connection to the made thing. And so um, I was using these material investigations that we were uh uh, uh, looking at uh to think about that issue and i came to the conclusion that uh, we needed a mechanism where we could construct any forms as sophisticated and complex geometric forms as you see emerging from digital technology but as a method of building where they were informed by how you would make this thing. And that's where the um, transition from uh, smaller scale direct material uh, manipulation to larger scale, what we call uh, a a transition from morphological uh, studies to relational studies. Mm -hmm. And so the relational investigations had to do with how you put materials in relationship to one another to construct complex geometries uh, and um, without uh, uh, with, with I should say not without uh, but maintaining the material as the unit of construction mm-hmm. as opposed to an imaginary or unknown material and uh, and so that uh, led to uh, investigation into ruled line uh, forms uh, and the uh, ability to use conventional uh, m- uh, materials like a two by four uh, to construct a very complex form simply by adjusting the relative position of each adjacent two by four. Mm. It's interesting hearing you talk um,
1: to imagine you sitting in on these, these types of studios at a school like Yale. Um, Where you're encountering, for the first time, um, a very palpable kind of shift or progression in the discipline, and what surprises me is your response to it. Because I know a lot of architects who, um, you know, are well-established and well-rooted in their approach to design, who would encounter that kind of situation, say, for example, a parametric design Mm -hmm. studio and be confused and disturbed maybe Mm -hmm. and they would just walk away yeah um and so to hear you kind of express curiosity about it and then try and i I guess address the formal concerns that maybe these types of studios or this approach to architecture um, are raising but through this kind of as you call it relational or contextual Mm -hmm. mode um I think it's actually quite uncommon especially for an architect who you're now 40 years into practice right Um, and so I guess it's I mean it's just something that's worth noting um, that there's a kind of risk involved possibly in redirecting the course of the practice this late in its genesis or in its kind of evolution
2: right well you know it's interesting I've always uh, sought out uh, um, I'm a contrarian by nature. I, I typically, uh, uh, my typical response to things is to, to think the opposite. But uh, I also seek out the opposite. So I've always been interested in listening to architects uh, and going to lectures by the architects who are least like me. Uh, the ones who are most like me, I find objectionable. <laughs> I, I really find it sort of because they're they're talking about what I know, uh, uh, and uh, I, I it's uh, I just find it less interesting. Mm. Uh, and so I've always wanted to to seek out and uh, things that are are other. Uh, and when Pat and I travel, which we. Uh, have done a lot around the world, and it's principally architectural uh, travel, uh, we've always looked uh, for the things that are most unlike us and most sort of different, to try and understand what those things are. Hmm. And uh, I think it's kept uh, uh, us uh, interested and engaged, hmm. uh, which uh, I think uh, is, uh, is great because what else would I, would, if you're not, a, if, you, if you lose your engagement with your discipline, then what do you do? Mm-hmm. This, I think, is an opportunity now to
1: go back to the beginning okay. um, in terms of um, this feeling of estrangement that I think um, a practice like yours seems to thrive on. And so, Pacquiao Architects was established not in Vancouver, right. but in Edmonton. right. Uh, in the late 70s, and um, the early work in that city, or in that region, uh, was of a kind of modernist bent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, for various reasons, I think partially economically, there was, a, there was a, a crash in Alberta in the late 70s. The practice moved out west, and with that move, um, everything seemed to change. And Mm -hmm. now, I know that it's not just the move. I know that there are other things happening in the culture, and notably, um, people like Kenneth Frampton were writing Mm -hmm. about ideas, about regionalism and context. And to me, I guess the theoretical influence and then the actual uh, influence of location acted on the practice in a really interesting way to fundamentally change your approach to design. And I wonder if we could talk about, I guess that, first of all, that sense of estrangement you had when you moved here from Alberta. And then also after that, we could touch on the influence of theory in the early work.
2: Okay. Well, I think that uh, uh, I'd like to, uh, to talk about that period of our practice because I, uh, it's, it's not correct. Okay. Uh, your interpretation is not correct. Um, what had happened was... Uh, Uh, Pat and I had um, moved from Winnipeg where we grew up and went to school uh, to Toronto at at a very bad time. Mm. We got uh, there and the economy was collapsing. This was in the late 70s uh, and I was able to get a job uh, and Pat was unable to get a job. She was trained as an interior designer, I was trained as an architect. Uh, I was able to get a job, I think it was the last job available in Toronto and so uh, we had a, a frustrating time because I found that the, that particular job didn't suit me. Uh, I didn't um, uh, support, uh, the, it was a very good office and very highly respected office but I didn't, when I found myself in that office, I didn't support the principles behind the work. Um, so, uh, so I was unhappy. Pat was unhappy because she didn't have a job. So she applied to graduate school and was accepted at Yale. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at that point, uh, I quit my job uh, and there was no other work in Toronto. Uh, Pat went to Yale and I went to the only place in Canada where there was work, which was Alberta because of the oil boom that was there at the time. It had never been our intention to relocate to Alberta. It was a circumstantial situation where I was looking for work uh, at the time that she went away to graduate school. And so uh, but the economy was so buoyant in Alberta. it was it was wonderful. It was exhilarating because there was such optimism uh, as a in contrast to our experience in Toronto, uh, that we were taken, or I was really caught up in it. Uh, and by the time Pat had uh, finished her program at Yale, I had my own practice going. There. So uh, I had started the practice in my early 30s, uh, literally with virtually no uh, real experience uh, because there was so much uh, opportunity there. And so our first project was a very large uh, uh, developer project, uh, which was late years beyond our Experience capacity, uh, but we struggled through the whole thing.
1: Don't tell me this was the Galleria. Yes It, it was, was. It this was. was your first project. That was the
2: absolute first project. I had never done a sort of working drawings in my life. Oh my god <laughs> So so anyway uh, I can't Anyway, I have this feeling of envy creep, <laughs> creep all over me now. Well, but I, I should say one thing that is uh, uh, needs to be understood is, is that uh, Pat and I had uh, al- always planned on ending up in Vancouver. Hmm. Uh, we were absolutely uh, seduced by the uh, landscape, uh, the topography, the mountains and water of, of the West Coast, and it was our plan to come here, But we started out by going east to Toronto because we wanted to avoid the, what we perceived to be the uh, self-indulgent, non-rigorous, non-intellectual attitude of architecture on the west coast and head for Toronto where we imagined there would be uh, a great deal more intellectual rigor. Mm. Uh, We were disappointed in finding that wasn't the case. (laughs) And so we decided to uh, give up our resistance and allow ourselves to be seduced. And so when the economy, the oil economy collapsed in uh, Alberta, we relocated to the West coast, where we had always intended to end up. Hmm. So we were simply fulfilling our uh, long-term plan uh, at that point. Uh, and regarding the sort of the uh, a pre- a perception of a change in the nature of our work, That might well simply be uh, the fact that we were very young in Alberta and we were uh, struggling to find ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But uh, when we moved to British Columbia, we had the uh, instant ability to work in a topography that inspired us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we were home. In a sense, even though we we're prairie people, we grew up in Winnipeg. Uh, this was uh, the the congenial context that we had been looking for, and so we simply found ourselves at home. I can't help but just dwell a bit on
1: that that first project because I've seen it. Yeah, um, I've been in it, um, and to me, it's staggering to think that, in the context of practice today, a client or developer would approach. A brand new architect with that scale and that complexity of work.
2: Can you imagine? Uh, we were, uh, I was, we were renovating an old Victorian house at the time, which was uh, uh, so, and the developer, who was a elderly uh, Italian developer who had relocated from Milan to Edmonton, uh, subsequently returned to Milan, <laughs> but had and was doing this development. And I was a uh, single, uh, a sole practitioner. I was, my, Pat was working in another office. Huh. I had a drafting board on sawhorses in uh, the shell of a building that we were renovating. And he uh, was s- still prepared to hire us mm. uh, to do this project. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It um, just wouldn't happen um, anymore. No. It's, it's just staggering, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we
1: could... We could move on from that, but I guess, for me, it says a lot about the course that was set for the practice to have had that kind of opportunity early on. And there's a question that we don't have to get into now about what it means to be a young practice today and be, I think, more beholden to the kind of specialisms involved and the amount of risk uh, the client perceives Mm -hmm. that would inhibit them from, I guess, commissioning that kind of project from a young office yeah. anymore.
2: No, it's, there are, there, I think that's very true. I think there's another important shift, which is that uh, I think our culture has become increasingly more conservative over that period of time as well. Mm. I mean, uh, in the 60s and 70s, Canada was actually an international architectural powerhouse. Yeah. Uh, we had projects that were of interest around the world. Uh, a, a number of them. There was a, a, a huge sort of uh, a powerful wave of innovation in Canadian architecture in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, which uh, uh, has, has gone. Uh, uh, at that time, uh, Europe was still in the process of recovering uh, from the effects of the Second World War, and the economy was still... I mean, we, when Pat and I graduated, we went to Europe and we traveled on $5 a day in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, it's amazing how uh, powerful the Canadian economy was relative to, say, European economies. Well, that has reversed. Uh. And now uh, you, find, you see innovation uh, in uh, European countries, and that's been the case for the last 30 or more years much more innovation and and ambition than you find in North America. I I think that um, there has been both a a shift to uh, a more conservative, uh, risk-averse sort of culture uh, and uh, in North America, uh, a a diminishment of architectural ambition. Mm. Uh, I don't see a lot of of leading-edge work occurring in North America.
1: Um, just as a side note, I think it might be interesting for listeners to hear uh, a bit about these kind of early powerhouses in oh, can, yeah. Canadian architecture or in North American architecture. In your eyes, like, are there a few uh, names we could kind of list just for?
2: Uh, absolutely. So. So uh, there was John Andrews in Toronto who designed Scarborough College which was one of the, er, one of the early brutalist megastructures. It was a phenomenal uh, project uh, and he went on to design the uh, GSE in Harvard and subsequently returned to Australia. Uh, there in Montreal there were a number of, of uh, uh, very innovative firms including a, a firm called ARCOP which is an acronym uh, Affleck, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera, partners who did uh, Place Bonneventure, and uh, and there was Expo '67 in Montreal, which had some fantastic projects in it, including Habitat, Moshe Shafti's best project ever. <laughs> uh, there was the German Pavilion, which is an astounding was an astounding project, which uh, was the test case for the ultimately the Munich Olympics. Mm. Um, there was the Bucky Fuller Geodesic Dome all manner of of, uh, innovative uh, construction in Montreal for the 67 World Fair. Uh, There were other projects in Toronto, uh, such as uh, Ontario Place and McMaster University in Hamilton and the CN Tower in Toronto, which was the still the tallest structure in the world until the uh, Burj in uh, in, uh, Dubai. Uh, And then on the west coast there was uh, a whole uh, school of um, uh, small-scale projects by a variety of architects, beautiful west coast houses, but there was also uh, uh, Simon Fraser University uh, by Erickson Massey. Uh, So Canada was just going nuts Mm. uh, uh, and doing some of the best work in the world at the time. I want to add one more to the list. Doug, Douglas Cardinal. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's interesting. A personal favorite. but uh,
2: That's very interesting. You know, um, uh, because uh, I was in Edmonton f- for a number of years, and Pat and I were there, uh, Douglas Cardinal was there as well. Mm. And um, and I've, I was frustrated by Douglas Cardinal. Mm. I certainly think that the St. Mary's Church that he did in Red Deer is a fantastic project it yeah. was it's a it's a really brilliant project and is again like safty his first project i still think mm. is his best project mm. um after that the work became uh less uh three dimensional less volumetric and more a planimetric, curvilinear jo- strategy which was simply extruded mm. and i i found that um uh, Uh, less compelling Mm. and I also was frustrated by the fact that people generally by and this is but it took it took me a long time to understand the virtue but people generally said to me well Douglas Cardinal is an artist he's not just an architect because he uses curves and I thought well how how low level you know how (laughs) simplistic simply because he has curves in plan Uh, uh, how is that more artistic than uh, a rectilinear architecture? But that was the general perception. And it's taken me uh, decades to uh, take uh, that advice. Mm -hmm. And we began to explore curvilinear geometries in three dimensions as part of our material operations work. Mm -hmm. And it was astounding the uh, General reaction we've received to that body of work, mm-hmm. um, the skating shelters was a global sensation. Yeah, this is interesting. Roy Kawakuba, who founded song right, uh, approached
1: you after seeing those ski uh, skating exactly. shelters, exactly, wanting them to become stainless steel change rooms for right. a store in Tokyo. Exactly,
2: exactly, <laughs> uh, and and it's it's it's. Uh, it, it's, and that has sort of carried on and, and certainly um, we have the largest version of those uh, geometries that we've done, which is the Temple of Light in Kootenai Bay uh, in southeastern British Columbia, has also been uh, very popular among a broad audience by virtue of its geometry, mm. uh, and now uh, that whole line of sort of investigation is being sort of re uh, imagined as uh, furniture, which we're currently currently developing with a, a, a very uh, good quality manufacturer based in Toronto, a camper. Mm. Uh and uh, so those material operations are now taking the uh, taking the form of of chairs, of various configurations, and they're all based on the manipulation of steel or wood, uh, which results in a deformation in the material to create a form, mm. which is the furniture. Uh, so uh, we're, explore- we're finding our way into um, a variety of new areas as a consequence of that investigation
1: it's interesting too that you're kind of entering a different culture of architecture that is more um i want to say relaxed and when you say popular yeah um there is a kind of broad appeal to these types of forms Mm -hmm. um there's a seductiveness to the image of these forms that um they do well (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's (laughs) visually that's true it also it also brings to mind um designers who've worked for you in the past who also pursue uh, work at an industrial design scale Mm -hmm. um, through a kind of similar approach and Omer Arbel in particular Mm -hmm. is one of them who I was lucky enough to interview last time I was here. Okay good. Um, But it's the same kind of attitude towards material um, where you as a designer are asking the material what uh, you can learn from it or what it wants to be. Uh, by applying various forces to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we talk about this approach to design, it's really a kind of rebirth, in a way, of the practice. And it sounds like you're scaling back, like you're, you're scaling back to furniture in a way that typically practices tend to start with that scale and then move up
2: more right. we're, f- we're not scanning back because we're also involved currently in some of the largest projects that we've ever been involved in right although we did a very large project which is the central library in Montreal mm. uh, which uh, is a is a very big building mm. we're but we're working on similar very large buildings today uh, so we're we've moved to very large buildings and going to the small-scale uh-huh. design at the same time there's a kind of agility there that I've I imagine must be difficult to manage. You know that's an interesting thing. We uh, became aware very early on of the virtue of of being able to have facility at different scales, to be able to design small things and large things. Um, And we have always uh, been conscious of the pitfalls of being locked into Uh, a certain uh, uh, type of project or scale of project. So there are very successful architects who are very good at small-scale projects. An example would be Glenn Merkitt in Australia who does wonderful small-scale projects and has made an entire career of that. Similarly, there are architects who are very good at doing extremely large projects. But we've attempted to keep our hands in both extremes in order to gain agility. Mm -hmm. And I think that it does allow you to transfer the sort of the skills, sensitivities, sensibilities that accrue as a consequence of working in those two different extremes.
1: this trajectory of the practice, we kind of left off at the move to Vancouver, right? and um, I guess what we'd established was that this kind of evolution of the work was in some ways as much based on um, the maturity of the practice and this kind of process of finding a voice or finding a language Mm -hmm. in architecture as much as it was an influence of the change of place and location. Right. Then there's this other part to it that I want to explore now with you, which is um, the practice's relationship early on to the realm of theory. Mm -hmm. um, And particularly through uh, the ideas that were emerging in the early 80s from people like Kenneth Frampton. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, uh, we've always uh, just... Uh, it's to state the obvious, we've always been very sympathetic to uh, Frampton's investigations into uh, regionalism. Um, and uh, it, it seemed very natural to us. Our, our interest in the topography, landscape, uh, character of uh, the West Coast, uh, it was it was easy to spring from that, to generalize from that, to all dimensions of architecture, to be interested in the particular, and we, the, so we were—we were always interested in the particular, and we were always trying to uh, find the again the found potential, which is uh, is an expression that we've used uh, in the particular, mm. uh, and in on a sort of in theoretical terms, we were doing this consciously to act as a balance toward the wave of, uh, of uh, global uh, forces that were taking over uh, culture uh, in the world. I just want to read something that
1: you said or wrote in uh, 94. There's a selected projects kind of monograph of mm-hmm. the practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and you write that you're trying to find a balance between the general and the particular and that mass culture is becoming so predominant that the local and the particular are becoming less and less evident. Then you talk about this McDonald's theorem, that international capitalism is creating a uniform global culture. Mm -hmm. And of course, we still feel this so strongly today, and even more so through the rise of digital culture, Mm -hmm. which only accelerates um, this kind of global um, idea of design and architecture. Um, But at the same time, you know, I'm going a bit off track here, but let's just let's just entertain the idea okay. that you're instrumentalizing the digital to recover a specificity.
2: That's a good question. I, I don't. I, I'm not sure that I agree with that. Um, the specificity comes as a result of an interest in the specific, in the particular. The digital technologies are. No different in the sense than a drafting machine, or draft, or a parallel rule, or a set square, and a and a pencil. They all have within them uh, constraints and potentials. And so I don't. I wouldn't accept that argument about the digital. I think of it more like simply a tool, mm-hmm. which can be used in the interests of uh, a whole variety, a whole spectrum of pursuits, uh, and our interest in the particular and our interest in balancing the general uh, is uh, uh, is facilitated by all the, all of these tools, including the digital. Mm. Is theory a kind of tool for you? Theory is a tool for us. We we were uh, we have always been interested uh, in uh, the. Theoretical, as a separate uh, inquiry, uh, separate from practice, uh, but as a as a necessary scaffold within which you practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm so happy you use that word. Yeah, <laughs> it occurred to me that it was the right word to use. Um, but at the same time, um, the. Our interest in theory is not as urgent as it was when we were starting out. When we were beginning, we actually had to construct a position for ourselves. Uh, and as that position has sort of filled in and filled out and become more uh, uh, sort of uh, a manner of thinking, uh, it's become less um urgent an issue for us. And I think that's potentially a problem Uh, and and certainly it's easy to fall into habitual ways, and we certainly uh, have those. Uh, At the same time, we do attempt, as we've discussed earlier in this discussion, uh, an interest to always find the other, uh, to always uh, try and expose ourselves to Uh, different approaches and and different results and to take them seriously and to try and take what we can from them. Uh, Certainly there I would say there is virtually no uh, architect uh, who has done, who's worked diligently at their craft uh, uh, regardless of their uh, point of view that we don't find uh, uh, has value for us. Uh, and so it's, we're, we continue to be quite omnivorous in terms of uh, uh, our architectural consumption. Uh, and that has kept uh, uh, the world of architecture interesting and lively for us. I think we could
1: end there, but I do have one more question. Okay. And it has to do with the identity of the practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically the kind of national identity. Mm-hmm. You were talking earlier about the Kind of leveling out of of the caliber of Canadian or to a certain extent North American yeah. architecture, uh, and yet uh, Pacquiao Architects is kind of upheld as a as a kind of high water mark of Canadian architecture.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I guess there's a question about like the national identity of the practice. And before we go there, um, again early on, a critic Benny Benes said. Yeah. Um, who wrote this introduction to this early monograph on the practice, was um, trying to tease out what he called a Canadian duality mm-hmm. uh, between, on the one hand, elemental aboriginal culture and on the other hand, this kind of urbane European heritage that we have as colonial subjects. Right. And so, I guess what I want to talk about is Canadianness mm-hmm. and the tension that uh, is felt um, in a kind of post-colonial context?
2: Right. It's a broad question. Well, it's a broad question. It's, uh, so, um, a couple of things. Our interest and in our sort of Canadianness is, in some ways, simply a reflection of the fact that we practice in Canada, uh, by and large, uh, although we have done quite a number of projects in the U.S. Uh, and we've had been very unsuccessful at getting at actually accomplishing them mm. we've won a, quite a number of of competitions which have never uh, been constructed uh, beginning with a large project in Texas, the Nursing, Biomedical the Nursing, and, the Nursing and Biomedical Sciences building. We won uh, some, a housing project at the University of Pennsylvania. We won the uh, competition for cottages at Falling Water. Yes. Uh, we've, uh, we've done quite a bit of work in the U.S. And, and worked on projects there for extended periods of time which never got built. Uh, and one of the things that we f- have found is that w- the competitions we won in Canada have almost all been built, and uh, uh, I, I, I actually think that in that regard, that's—I uh, would say that U- the U.S. by and large is more conservative than Canada is, and those projects, which were ambitious projects, ultimately didn't happen because they were pushing too hard. Uh, Whereas the similar projects that we have won in Canada actually have been constructed. So that's, I I think, uh, 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 my experience, uh, which would suggest that Canada is actually a more uh, fertile ground, uh, I guess you might say proportionally, uh, to the U.S. Obviously, there are some remarkable architectural practices and uh, projects, uh, in the US. But if you think about the fact that the US is 10 times the size of Canada, I wouldn't suggest that there are 10 times more uh, uh, interesting things happening there than there are in Canada. Mm. So uh, returning to the question of Canadianness, ness uh, we have though won projects all across the country in competition. So library in Montreal, an art museum in Waterloo, Ontario, a sports facility in Toronto, uh, art museum in Thunder Bay, a library in Winnipeg, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And so we have uh, developed a national practice as a consequence of winning competitions, uh, which was uh, the way in which our practice has grown and survived uh, until I would say relatively recently, where we are now beginning to actually, after being in Vancouver for 35 years, uh, have a Practice a local practice, which is actually self-sustaining. Until very recently, we could never have survived on uh, work in uh, in the West Coast. Uh, we were absolutely dependent on work in other parts of Canada mm. simply to survive. Mm. Of course, the consequence is we practiced from almost across the entire country in all of the, uh, the uh, major cities in Canada, uh, and uh, uh, in that sense. Uh, are one of the more even though we're a relatively small practice are one of the more national practices uh, and we've and as a consequence as well we've partnered with local firms because that's how those competitions are actually achieved uh, and developed relationships that are across the country uh, there are a few other firms that do that uh, but for a firm of our size that's exceptional
0: mm.
1: And then there's this post-colonial question, which I kind of find difficult to um, articulate clearly, but maybe if we go back to that duality yeah. of the elemental kind of aboriginal context of the, the kind of land or landscape yeah. Yeah. and the urbane European heritage. Yeah. Like, do you feel... There's one specific project that I might, might help guide us through this last question, which is the Seabird Island mm-hmm. School, yeah. uh, which was completed in 1988 and became a kind of hallmark for the practice during that era. Designed in part in collaboration with an Aboriginal community in response to a colonial past of um, residential schools. And so to me that's an interesting project to kind of capture uh, the tension that might be felt as an architect coming into this very kind of um, fraught and like tense kind of Recent history. Yeah and acting within it
2: uh, well, I think that, you know it, that's a that too is a is an interesting question and it's something that is uh, is not an issue in large parts of the world in Asia and Europe that that question doesn't exist whereas it does exist in North America and Australia and New Zealand and and those those countries and uh, it's uh, and certainly um, in British Columbia, which uh, in where in which the First Nations communities generally have not uh, given away their claims to land uh, by treaty as they have in the rest of North America, uh, and so they are a force of, to be reckoned with, uh, and there are by virtue of uh, remoteness and location communities, which uh, still maintain a very vital sort of continuity of culture. Uh, And so uh, we've had to interact with these communities and to accept them and they have, and of course they're similarly obliged to uh, interact with us and accept us. And we found, uh, I think, a meeting place uh, and uh, it has informed our work and it is consistent with our interest in the particular as opposed to the general. And our response to the particularities of culture, their particulars of culture, uh, is completely consistent with our general interests uh, in the particular. Uh, and so it was a very natural uh, uh, response of ours to un- try and understand the cultural history and interests and values of the Seabird Island community. And, uh, it, and we discovered that through interaction with them. And we uh, attempted to develop a project which reflected their cultural values and uh, and in a sense forms without being literal and without being patronizing. Because there is there is the real trap of falling into cliche and a patronizing uh, representation of uh, their culture as a colonial architect, mm. uh, and so uh, fortunately we are now developing a community of First Nations architects, and so uh, they are. Uh, claiming their their dependence on our professional skills as a community is diminishing. They have their own architects, uh, which I think it will be very interesting to see what uh, the result of that is. But um, it was uh, um, of real sort of uh, formative power, our interaction with that community at um, uh, sort of an early point in our career. And then, subsequently, to move across country, uh, working in uh, in Montreal was also uh, an, an engagement with uh, a, a different culture, uh, a francophone culture, uh, which was uh, also uh, uh, a culture that was uh, in reaction against a different form of of colonialism. I mean, they were colonialists themselves, but then they were subsequently colonized by the English world. Uh Uh, And so uh, that uh, was a different form of that experience. And uh, it has led us, I think, to attempt to be sensitive to subtle differences in culture. Working in Thunder Bay, for example, where we're currently developing an art museum, uh, which happens to have a very strong collection, 95% of which is First Nations art. Mm. Um, Gain has resulted in tweaking of uh, the work to reflect, Uh, the distinct nature of the community in Thunder Bay Uh, and so we are we we try and be really sensitive and attuned to all of those uh, nuances of difference uh, that exist even between urban and rural situations Mm. John thank you so much for your time you're more than welcome I've enjoyed talking to you You've been listening
1: to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park with additional music this week by Caribou. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold_Podcast. Thank you to John Patco and to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show. Thanks as always to Scandalin and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks.